0: From the Midtown Detroit studios of WDET, this is Detroit Today.
1: We're going to continue our look back at 2021 through the lens of single topics or issues today with a look at the year in the law. This 12-month span was primed from the beginning or rather explosive year in racial justice and abortion rights and other issues, but lots of unexpected events made it even more tumultuous and challenging. We're going to talk with University of Michigan Law Professor Barb McWade about all of it and hear from you. It's next on Detroit today. right after the news from NPR. Good day, and welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Steven Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. Today, we wanna to continue our series of shows looking back at a single topic or issue throughout the past year with a look at all of the news that happened inside and outside of courtrooms around the law in our nation in 2021. Now, there have been so many high profile trials and legal challenges this year, things that have dealt with everything from racial justice to abortion rights to the way we treat minors and their parents in court. And of course, here in Michigan, we were all challenged recently when a 15 year old student went to school in Oxford, his high school, with a gun and killed four of his classmates that's a social challenge for all of us the prevalence of gun violence but there's an important legal context to all of that that we've all had to grapple with over the last few weeks the law really defines so much of how we relate to each other and how we relate to the idea of this as a nation with equal justice for all at the center of those considerations. And each year, of course, all of those things get changed. They push and pull against each other, and we end up thinking about them in new and different ways. So we really want to have an exciting conversation today about how that looked in 2021, and we have a really fabulous guest and friend of the show with us this hour to break down many of these issues. Barb McQuaid is a law professor at the University of Michigan, and she is the former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. She's also co-host of the really great Sisters in Law podcast. Barb, welcome back to Detroit Today.
2: Thanks very much, Stephen. Really glad to be with you. I love these year-end retrospectives. You know, they they say journalism is the first draft of history. But I think as it's going by, the news cycle can be so busy Mm -hmm. that it's hard to really reflect on the big picture. So I'm really glad you're doing this and honored to be with you.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I want to start here. Uh, So much of our focus on racial justice and police reform in this last year uh, was defined by something that happened in 2020, which was the murder of George Floyd and its aftermath. So this year, we saw the trial of Derek Chauvin, who was the police officer who killed uh, George Floyd. And I think a lot of people were surprised by the way that turned out. Uh, Prosecutors in Minnesota did a really, I thought, uh, admirable and impressive job putting on a case against Derek Chauvin. But so often we see juries not look so much at the facts as, as be influenced by Uh, other things, Uh, the the social context of these things, the the, the bias that exists inside the criminal justice system. Here we saw things work exactly the way I think uh, people, most people at least, would think they should, which is that if you kill someone in uh, a reckless or premeditated way that uh, you'll have to answer before the law. I wonder what you make of this outcome of that trial and what it means for holding law enforcement uh, officials accountable in the future.
2: I thought that conviction was incredibly important to show that police officers can be held accountable. I can remember a case my former office at the U.S. Attorney's Office handled against a law enforcement official that we thought was a strong case where he was acquitted, and the jury said afterwards, we wanted even more evidence before we were prepared to convict a lawman. And so I think that bias still exists. I think one of the things that was different about this case that put it in such stark relief was the video evidence. The jury could see for themselves. And remember, this was a case where the police issued a press release after George Floyd's death saying that, unfortunately, uh, an individual had died in police custody um they had not uh, disclosed the role of Derek Chauvin in his death and it was only because bystanders videotaped this with their phones which we now have available to almost all of us that the world could see the kind of abuse that led to the death of George Floyd and that it was it was Derek Chauvin who killed him it wasn't just that you know he had some medical emergency uh, tragically and sadly while in police custody so I think it was very eye-opening for a lot of white Americans. You know, I know you you talk to your black friends who say, you you know, we I've been pulled over for driving while black and this is the kind of treatment that I I get. There's a famous Key and Peele um, skit where uh, Barack Obama is teaching Malia how to drive while he's president, and they want to give him a break, and he says, "No, I want I, this is a teachable moment for Malia. I want you to treat me exa- treat us exactly the way you would treat us if we were just ordinary citizens." And then the next thing they cut to, you know, the officers pounding on Barack Obama on the ground, um, which is, you know, a very um, stark reminder of. the the sometimes very different forms of justice that white and black Americans have. But I thought that the the trial was a really important moment for helping um, all of America understand what people of color sometimes face when they are in police custody and really important to show that you can hold people accountable because as prosecutors think through cases they think about the likelihood of a conviction and I think that the Derek Chauvin trial showed that you can get convictions in these cases when the facts are there and the law is there
1: so so I want to talk a little more about how the stage was set for all of this this year of course after George Floyd's murder in 2020 we saw massive protests not just here in America but but really all over the world bringing attention to this issue of uh, the way that police interact with uh, with people of color uh, in in America and uh, there was this I think anticipation that things couldn't go the way that they should I mean I, I think a lot of people felt really apprehensive about what would happen for instance, this year, if Derek Chauvin had been acquitted or if there had been a hung jury. So I, I want to have you talk just a little about some of the things that the prosecution here did and did right uh, that that likely led to, to to this outcome and how we might see prosecutors in the future deal with cases like this to try to get similar results. Keith Ellison, who's uh, the attorney general of uh, Minnesota, actually stepped in to, to prosecute this case himself, something that's really unusual. We don't see that happen uh, every day. Um, uh, was that one of the things that made this different or perhaps uh, impressed that jury in a different way than if a local prosecutor had done it? You know, he also he also did a number of different things during the trial that I think caught people by or or at least were different from what we'd seen in other trials. Were those maybe the difference makers? There was I mean, again, this this stands out as something of an outlier in the way that it that it happened. And I guess I'm wondering if there are things we can draw from it that we might see other people doing doing down the road.
2: Well, one really important thing I think that Keith Ellison did, the Attorney General of the state of Minnesota, Native Detroiter by the way. Yes, of course. Um, <laughs> is to take the case as the Attorney General. Um you know, originally this case was being handled out of Hennepin County, which is the county where the the crime took place. And it was moving very slowly. And I think one of the challenges we have sometimes when you have local prosecutors prosecuting cases involving the very agency that they work with is conflicts of interest, whether they're real or even just perceived conflicts. That can be problematic. And so mm-hmm. Keith Ellison, as the attorney general, was able to come in and say, we're going to look at this unbiased. We we don't know any of these people. We're just going to look at it objectively. That alone, I think, was really important. He also compiled a really all-star team. He hired a lawyer out of private practice to join his team. But he, you know, he included those with expertise who had tried lots of criminal cases, but he also brought in a top-notch civil practitioner to round out his trial team, which I think was Very important. He was also very aggressive in the charges he chose. I think there were some who would have gone with more lenient charges. He charged uh, murder and, uh, in addition to manslaughter, and he got convictions on all of those counts. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think he was um, unflinching in uh, the way he looked at this case. And he showed great faith in juries that if they see the facts, and we have it all on video in this case they will agree with me that this was a murder. This wasn't just an accidental death. Um, This was one where we've got malice that brings it to the level of murder, and we need to hold accountable those who abuse their their badge in this way. So I think that was something that he did um, a little bit differently. Of course, Derek Chauvin did not testify, um, but one of the things they did is they really allowed these uh, bystanders to tell the story. It was unusual in that oftentimes the story gets told through the eyes of other law enforcement officials, mm-hmm. o- only because they're professional witnesses, they're good at testifying, they've had practice, they've had training. Instead we heard from uh, you know uh, the young woman, teenager, who did the video of this. We heard from a man who was a martial arts specialist who was telling Derek Chauvin, you're going to kill him. What you're doing there is putting pressure on his chest and you're going to kill him. And in their testimony, I thought, um, allowed all of us as and in the jurors um, to really f- be there and feel like what it must have felt like for that very long period of time. You know, nine minutes or so that he sat on his chest, um, and and I thought just brought home so vividly and made us feel what it must have felt like to be there and watching this man have the breath literally squeezed out of him.
1: Hmm. I'm talking with uh, Barb McQuaid. She's a professor, law professor at the University of Michigan, former. U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan and the co-host of a really wonderful legal podcast called uh, Sisters in Law. We're talking about the year 2021 in the law, the different ways in which uh, cases in the law, issues in the law really shaped uh, the way we lived here in 2021. Uh, we'd love to hear from you as well during this conversation. Give us a call and uh, tell us what stands out in your mind about uh, social justice or abortion, uh, which we haven't talked about yet, or uh, the charges, for instance, that are now looming over 15 year old Ethan Crumley and his parents uh, in the wake of his shooting, his uh, fatal shooting of four students at uh, Oxford High School here in Southeast Michigan. Um, What do you think about how the law sort of uh, influences our life? How the law influences these issues uh, in America in 2021? As always, give us a call on the phones at 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page, put comments there. Or go to Twitter and hashtag Detroit today, and we'll try to include you in the in the comments uh, that way. I also want to talk, uh, uh, Barb, about another uh, trial that that fits into this narrative of racial justice and injustice in America. The the three white men who murdered Ahmad Arbery, a black man who was gunned down after simply jogging through their neighborhood uh, in, in Georgia. That con- conviction came down recently um, and, and again, fits into this question of the way in which race uh, influences criminal justice in this, in this uh, country. Lots of people, I think, myself included, were really skeptical uh, that, uh, that jury in, in Georgia would convict those three men. and. And they did. Uh, I I guess one of the bigger questions is whether we're at a kind of critical turning point with these kind of things when you think about race in in the courtroom. Uh, Has all of the attention, all of the protest, all of the anger about that finally got hold of the system in a way that it is more likely to deliver some semblance of justice rather than to turn a blind eye to these things?
2: Yeah, I think yes and no. You know, Every case has to be decided on its own facts, and I think sometimes we feel like, I can't believe uh, another black man was killed. Um, it must be an injustice, because the jury is going to look at it at a very granular level. But I do think that um, there was a lot of awareness that got raised following the death of George Floyd that maybe caused people to think twice about whether um, there is uh, a serious problem that just causes jurors to look at this evidence with a little more of a of a careful eye. And so I do think it's quite possible that all of the protests of George Floyd have had a, a really important effect on the entire culture in our country and all of those prospective jurors. Now, I think, once again, in this case, we had video evidence, and that uh, helped a lot. I I worry that uh, in in a future case where there is not video evidence, it just becomes too easy to fall back into... Uh, the, the false narratives of, you know, the hyper-aggressive, super-strength black man that posed a threat. Um, so it's, it's in these cases when we have video that we see uh, some, some justice. Um, so that'll be the real test. How, how do we do when there's not any video? But in this case, the video evidence was pretty indisputable that Ahmad Arbery was really just running down the street mm-hmm. when, you know, these men just stopped him with a, with a shotgun, uh, and said they wanted to question him and, you know, we performing a citizen's arrest or something. And so, uh, you know, the idea that they were somehow acting in self-defense when they accosted this unarmed jogger, uh, was really ridiculous. And I think the jury was able to see through that because of the video evidence.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to continue this conversation with uh, Barb McQuaid about 2021 and the year in law. We will get to some of your social media comments as well as phone calls. Bernadette and Old Redford, Delphine and Warren, you'll be up first. If you want to join them on the phones, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today.
0: Bringing you news that matters.
1: Stories that impact your life.
0: Music from the Motor City and around the world. This is 1019 WDET. Detroit's NPR station.
1: Listening to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson and as always, thanks for joining. My guest this hour is Barb McQuaid. She is a law professor at the University of Michigan and the former U.S. Attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, also co-host of the legal podcast, Sisters in Law. We're talking about the year in law, 2021, all of the things that happen inside courtrooms and around courtrooms that uh, influence the way we live as Americans here. Uh, As always, we want to hear from you about the things that stand out in your mind uh, about 2021 and the law. Are there cases that caught your attention? Are there bigger issues outside the courtroom? Uh, that had you really pondering things or thinking about them this year, give us a call and let us know about them. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation that way. I want to start with a Twitter comment and then go to a phone call that are both about what we were just talking about, which was, uh, the conviction of Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd in 2020 and the conviction of three white men in Georgia for the killing of Ahmad Arbery, a, a, a black man who, was gun- who they gunned down after they caught him just running, uh, jogging through their neighborhood. Uh, Let's go. uh, Okay, the the social media comment here is uh, Big Neo uh, on Twitter writes, he says it's satisfying to see convictions for the deaths of Aubrey and Floyd. I hope there will be more convictions moving forward in similar cases. uh, But I'm worried it won't be unless there is video showing the crime in action. Uh, Let's go to Denise in Detroit, uh, who has a similar question and comment. Denise, welcome to the show.
3: Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes, I just wanted to say that um, just like the uh, person said you just read, I mean, uh, the video is great. I mean, you know, we need the video, but um, it shouldn't just have to be video for a person to get justice for being attacked by the police or whatever. Uh, Black man, black woman. um, And just like those cases, you know, there there was video Um, and uh, they, you know, received uh well you know justice or whatever, which is great but i'm I'm just thinking you know just saying that there shouldn't have to you know be video for that to happen mm.
1: yeah denise really appreciate your call uh and the perspective there I also want to go to Jerry in Detroit who has a similar issue and and question and wants to add another dimension to it Jerry go ahead
0: um good morning um to both um Stephen and Barbara mm-hmm
1: Great to hear from you go ahead
0: um I want to know two uh, really three things if you if you would allow me if you would please yeah go ahead um first um, I wanted to ask miss McQuaid, and i'm I'm a big fan of her her um, sisters in law podcast um, um, I was wondering um if, do, do you, if she thinks the, first if she thinks these cases would have turned out differently had there not been cell phone video um, second um do you think um uh, then there there should be a need to abolish abolish qualified immunity in cases of of white racist police violence and secondly um um I wonder what she thinks of the you know of all of the the blame shifting that goes on within the um uh, particularly in the in the white community on the right basically trying to um blame the victims for their own deaths
1: yeah uh jerry there's a lot there's a lot to unpack in what you just said uh and of course, from Denise and Big Neil, we had those questions too let's start with this question of video barb, which I think is a super interesting question, not just because of uh the the power i guess that that these videos have in the courtroom. But I guess the echoes that I see in that kind of evidence and, and some of history. I mean, I'm not the first person to draw the parallel, I think, between these cell phone videos and Emmett Till's mother's decision mm-hmm. to have him laid uh, laid in a, a casket with a glass top on it so that people could see what was what was done to him. It's that same kind of call shock right uh to to get people to think of something in 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 starker terms is that the difference though i guess is is uh the question that our listeners are asking in in these cases and and would it be much harder to get these outcomes if you didn't have video
2: yeah i agree with denise and jerry both that i think it would be more difficult without video and the real test will come when there is a significant case and there's not video, but I think that the video has performed uh, an important function on a larger scale, as you say, uh, comparing it to Emmett Till or think about um, a Bloody Sunday with Selma, when uh, you know people were horrified to see the way police were treating uh, peaceful black protesters, you know, pounding on them and uh, uh, you know bringing them within inches of of their death. Um, I think those kinds of things can have a powerful effect. Um, You know, if you ask um, people, say, in a workplace, Um, and I've I've seen this with sexism. Ask all the men, you know, is there any sexism in our workplace? And the men all say, absolutely not. And all all the women will say, yes, there is. (laughs) And it's just because the men just don't see it and uh, it doesn't happen around them or they have a different perception of what what that is. And similarly, if you ask the black people, is there racism in our workplace? Most of them will say yes and most of the white people will say, no, I'm shocked. And so when you show it in such stark terms and you say, this is what we put up with. When we say we are treated differently by the police, this is what we mean. I think it could have... A really important eye-opening effect on all Americans that this is uh, the kind of injustices that occur so that down the road when there is a case without video uh, people will be more receptive to the testimony of witnesses who simply tell rather than show the kind of abuse that has occurred.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, What about the qualified immunity question that Jerry raises? Uh, Lots of people now talking about how we probably need to have a Pretty big conversation about how qualified mm-hmm. immunity works. Is it one of the things that prevents the accountability that we're after here?
2: Yeah, and Jerry, great, very insightful question. This comes up in civil liability. So when you sue a police officer mm-hmm. uh, for violating your rights, you know, wrongful death, say the George Floyd family brings wrongful death against uh, Derek Chauvin. Qualified immunity says you can't sue a police officer. Now, it's only qualified uh, if they violate a, a clearly established constitutional right then uh, you may sue them. But what's happened over the years is, and this is all you know judge made doctrine, what has happened over the years is that definition of clearly established right has become so narrow that unless you can point to a case where someone did exactly what this officer did, you know, I sometimes joke it, you know had to be on a Tuesday by a left-handed police officer. It's not quite that bad, but it's close that it's almost impossible for people to say this scenario, was the violation of a clearly established right? I think a fix, if we had a functional Congress, would be to put a, a statute on the books about what qual- qualified immunity is and to define it and give it a definite term, so that there is some immunity for a police officer who acts in good faith. You know, there there is that dynamic of we want p- good people to be police officers. Sometimes things happen quickly; they're quickly evolving situations. They need to act to protect themselves and other people sometimes from people who are dangerous. Um, allowing them a little bit of room for mistakes, but at the same time not making it virtually impossible to hold them accountable when they make an egregious violation of someone's rights. And so I think the way to fix that is with a statute and, uh, one would hope that, uh, in a Congress that had the best interests of all Americans at heart that we could achieve such a statute. Yeah. Uh,
1: thanks everyone for the social media, uh, comments and the calls there. Um, Let's go to Karen in Macomb County. Karen, welcome to the Good show. Good morning. Hi, how are Hi. you?
3: Thanks for uh, taking my call. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was just you know, hearing about the qualified immunity and um, unfortunately, um, you know, the government and the police department, they just hide behind that. Um, it's, it's really um, disheartening. And uh, in regards to Chauvin, he definitely got what he deserved but what i'm watching is you have police departments looking at that and just not wanting to do their jobs um which is really sad um because you know when laws are being broken i mean we rely on the police to do their job um and you end up with just at the entire government level it's a mess um you know, the building department and the police and, you know, the council and the mayor, they're all supposed to work together, and yet every single one of them will give excuses as to why they're not doing their job. They point the finger and say, well, it's that department not doing their job. Um, And, you know, you just watch these situations unravel where, um, you know, just, for instance um, you know an incident where it's definitely public nuisance Mm -hmm. and the police are not ticketing when a person is completely out of control there's no ifs ands or buts it's Mm -hmm. disturbing the peace it is a public nuisance um, and nothing's being Mm -hmm. done and uh, then on the flip side a police officer will say Scream in the face of somebody who's not even breaking the law, and that's really dangerous when you know COVID is just spiking out of control. Sure. If you file a complaint with the police department, nothing is done. There is uh, no uh,
1: Karen, response. Karen, really appreciate the the call and your really fiery comments about uh, about all of this. Um, you know, Barb, you were a law enforcement official here in, in Southeast Michigan. and So you know, as well as anybody, that there are lots of things uh, to think about when we talk about changing the way that uh, people interact uh, with police. Uh, just talk about some of the things that Karen's talking about though, this, this fear that a lot of police have to do their jobs uh, because of, uh, I guess, the environment that we live in now.
2: Yeah, and you know, Karen, I, I definitely sympathize with some of your sentiments about how Um, You know, we hear public officials simply blaming each other and they don't seem to be having the best interests of the people they serve in mind. But I'll give you a little bit of of hope on uh, in this regard. Um, As a former U.S. attorney, we prosecuted police officers. I'm seeing the Biden administration making uh, lawsuits against police departments with patterns and practices of unconstitutional policing a priority. Um, And there's also uh, a great movement in Detroit by two uh, foundations, the Hudson Weber Foundation and the Community Foundation for Southeast Michigan to provide grant funds to police departments Mm -hmm. who want to do better. And what was so heartening to me, Karen, is that when we put out the, I'm on the advisory committee of this group, when we put out the grant proposal, we had 70 police departments say, we are so eager to, to do better. It's, you know, funding, grant funding to do things like training and use of force, updating their policies, helping them deal with mental health crises, 70 police departments um, uh, had expressed interest in those grants. To date, we have awarded us two sets of five, so 10 grants to 10 communities who are doing all kinds of things from community reconciliation to hiring mental health professionals to show up at the scene of mental health crises to uh, use of force uh, policies and training. And so, I just want to push back a little bit that no officer wants to do their job. Actually, I think a lot of officers do want to do their jobs and do them well, and I think chiefs want to do their job and do them well. No doubt there are certainly some police uh, officers who uh, taint the badge of others, uh, but officer wellness is a part of this too. You know, They've got really hard jobs, and sometimes when you see police officers yelling at people it's because their departments have not attended to the wellness of the officers. Who deal with you know death, uh, murder scenes, the scenes of child abuse, uh, fatal car crashes? They need some uh, tr- you know counseling as well when they go through those kinds of things. So I'm very heartened by this expression of interest by 70 metropolitan police departments mm-hmm. um, and the 10 grants and more to come uh, that are be- being utilized to help transform our police departments to make them more responsive to the needs of our community.
1: Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, Karen, really appreciate the call and the comments. Let's go next to Chase in Detroit. Chase, what's on your mind? Good morning. Um, I have a question for Professor McQuade about uh, part of the
3: process in jury selection. Um, oftentimes, we see that there's
0: bias when attorneys, especially defense attorneys, try to ensure
1: that there aren't uh, black people or other people of color on juries when um, there's a question of race involved. And I'm wondering, you know, are there policies that we can put
3: in place to remove some of the bias in the jury selection process, and if Professor mcquaid believes that there is bias in that process,
1: yeah, Chase, great, great question. And as uh, someone who uh, uh, who covered legal issues in the Supreme Court for for five years, I, I have to say that I, this was one of the issues that drove me absolutely bananas. Was uh, how often you'd see uh, just open bias in in the jury selection process and uh, even after someone was convicted and maybe even sentenced to death, no court would intervene, no appeals court and the Supreme Court would, would always take a pass, even though we have precedents that say you, you absolutely can't do that. Um, Barb, talk about where we are with, uh, with making the jury selection process make more sense and be less racist.
2: Yeah, Chase, you really identify one of the fault lines I think in the criminal justice system, and it's one where there's not a good solution at the moment. Uh, we go back to a case before the Supreme Court of the 1980s called Batson versus Kentucky, Batson, right? Yeah, where the Supreme Court did say it is a violation of the constitutional rights of the defendant to strike jurors based on on race, and then another case that came on a little bit later that said it's also. Uh, the right of the 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 jurors to sit on a trial, um, you know, to be a juror. You have an equal protection right to that. The challenge is that it's very difficult to enforce it because what happens is if someone uh, begins to demonstrate a pattern of striking all the jurors of color, um, then the other side can raise a Batson challenge. Um, and then as long as the person who's doing uh, those strikes, making those strikes, has some... Uh, legitimate non-racial reason to do it, then they're permitted. And so, you know, it ends up being things like, um, it, you know, there's a recent case called Flowers where there was uh, a case that was dismissed as a result of of this. And it, it was something like 29 black jurors were, were struck. And in... In the instance of the white jurors, the, the prosecutor was asking one or two questions. And in the case of the black jurors, they'd ask 10 or 20 questions. And ultimately, you could find some reason that you could use this bias. Well, he used to work at Walmart, and her mother works at Walmart. And I'm worried that that could create a conflict and make it more difficult for her to be an objective juror. So I'm going to strike her. Um, you know, it, it, And ultimately, the court held that that was a problem. But I think it does go on at lower levels. And as you said, um when the defendant is the one striking the people of color, I think judges are a little more uh, reluctant mm-hmm. to uh, have a heavy hand in the case of a defendant. So as you saw in the case uh, involving the death of Ahmad Arbery, the McMichaels, um, in that case, the defense struck something like 11 out of 12 black jurors. And they had some you know, um, facial reason that they did that. Uh, I think if the prosecution had tried to do that, I'm hopeful, um, the judge would have been a little more reluctant to allow that to occur. Would have said, "This is a Batson violation, and you need a better reason to be striking these people." It is still the case that a defense attorney can't do it either because they're using the machinery of the state in the in the jury system mm-hmm. um, for discriminatory purposes. But I think judges are just, um, you know, I know, I know. It feels like the stack is the deck is stacked in favor of the prosecution in a trial, and it is. They have lots of resources, um, but there are certain things that um are in the favor of the defendant because we still have this idea that uh, better that 10 guilty people be convicted than one innocent person be um, uh, held held 10 guilty people be acquitted than one innocent person be convicted yeah. and so as a result of that you know we have this higher burden of proof of guilt beyond a reasonable doubt by a unanimous jury and I find that judges sometimes are, Um, a little more lenient with defendants just because they want to honor uh, that notion. And so I think it can be harder there. I think one way to do it would, again, be to codify Batson. You know, it it develops out of case law, which sometimes leads to uh, uneven administration. Mm -hmm. And one proposal has been to eliminate or curtail the number of peremptory challenges that both lawyers get. Um, i've also seen give them only to the defense and not the prosecution you know and peremptory challenges are the ones that are just sort of discretionary there are challenges for cause where you know if your brothers on trial you get struck because there's a presumed conflict of interest that you know the parties but there's also this batch of of challenges strikes that lawyers get just for any reason or no reason at all and that's where this uh, perceived racism can creep in you know if you're striking 11 out of the 12 black jurors. Maybe you had a good reason for some of them, but you know, after a while, that pattern uh, seems to suggest that there's more at work there than, than good faith, that there is a bias against certain jurors based on their race.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Chase, really appreciate the call uh, and the great question. Okay. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with Barb McQuaid about legal issues here in 2021. We're going to talk about What happened in Oxford last month uh, with Ethan Crumbly, a 15-year-old, coming to school with a gun and killing four of his classmates, wounding a lot of other people. Uh, We'll also get to some of the bigger legal issues in Washington uh, with the the power of the executive branch and uh, the hangover from the Trump presidency. If you want to join us, give us a call, 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook or Twitter, put comments there, and we'll include you in the program that way. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We're talking today about the year in the law in 2021, all the legal issues uh, that came up in the last 12 months. And our guest is Barb McQuaid, who is a law professor at the University of Michigan, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan, and co-host of a really great legal podcast called Sisters in Law. We want to hear from you as well during... Uh, this conversation. Uh, As always, 313-577-1019 is the number here on the phones. That's 313-577-1019. You can go to Facebook and Twitter and put comments there as well, and we'll work you into uh, the conversation. Uh, I want to start this uh, segment of the show with a call uh, from Delphine in Warren. Delphine, welcome to the show. Hi. Hi, how are you? Thank you for taking my call, and I'm mm-hmm. so
3: proud of Barbara being a Michigan woman and <laughs> talking to us about the law. I also have a nephew that works at Oxford High School. But many years ago, um, the Valentine's Day Massacre, mm-hmm. that people were so outraged that they did pass laws to outlaw machine guns. Now, it's nine years since the Sandy Hook massacre. Still, still, what in the world is? Why can't these lawmakers outlaw these powerful weapons? Mm. Does the NRA have such a stranglehold on our lawmakers? What's more important than innocent lives?
1: Yeah, Delphine, uh, really appreciate the call and. The historical context uh, for for the conversation that we're having right now, uh, Barb. I, I, this was on my list of of things to, to talk about. Of course, the Oxford shooting. Uh, I, I like the way that uh, Delphine has kind of introduced it here, with with the discussion of guns and the proliferation of guns in in America. So I'll I'll give you that as a as a jumping off point.
2: Yeah, thanks for the question, Delphine, and thank you for the kind words. I appreciate you very much. <laughs> um, you know, in the mid nineties, nineteen ninety four, we actually had an assault weapons ban in this country. When I was started as a prosecutor, it was illegal to possess uh, something like ten different types of assault weapons and high capacity magazines, and that was allowed to lapse in two thousand four, and and now it's it's back. So there was a time when we had the political will to do this. Um, and it, it's, it's been lost. I don't understand it because I agree with you. And, you know, there's that phrase, guns don't kill, people do, or whatever it is. But uh, the guns can make it an awful lot more lethal when you have uh, a semi-automatic weapon. Um, Ethan Crumbly had a semi-automatic uh, handgun, and, and that's what allows, you know, the rapid-fire shooting. He was able to kill four people in five minutes, I think. Um, and so many of these mass shootings... People have these high-powered assault weapons. You know, these are made to be weapons of war or weapons for police officers. They're designed uh, to kill people, many people quickly. Um, And the idea that people need those, you know, I I know um, Michigan has a long tradition of hunting. I know many people want to keep a gun in their home for safety, and I have no quibble with that. It is these assault weapons in high-capacity magazines that really have no purpose other than to kill people very quickly. And why can't we do it? You know, the NRA is a powerful force, but its power has really waned. Um, and I see so many of, it's become uh, <clears throat> kind of the symbol of the tribe of the, of the far right, of right-wing extremism. You know, There are two members of Congress who posed in their holiday cards uh, with everyone in the family holding a, a machine gun or a semi-automatic weapon uh, you know, including the children around the Christmas tree. That's just disgusting and hideous. And it, it has become part of this whole you know, trolling of the left. Uh, you know those who are find themselves in power and enjoy, it seems more um, riling up liberals than it is governing. And so I, I think we the people need to organize around this and other issues that we care about because it is it is something that is absolutely killing us. And There are those who point to the Second Amendment, and the language there says, uh, you know, the right, the need for a well-regulated militia, uh, comma, the people, uh, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be abridged. Um, they're not using them for a well-regulated militia, uh, you know, and the textualists uh who ordinarily say, well, we have to look at the meaning of words at the time the Constitution was written. Well, at the time the Constitution was written, uh, the Bill of Rights was written, um, arms meant a musket with one yeah. ball, uh, and he, shot, he fired that shot. In the most recent case on this topic, Heller, um, Justice Scalia wrote that, uh, you know, they raise this argument, and that's just frivolous, and then he moves on. He never talks about why it's frivolous. Right. But even Justice Scalia did say, um, we do not go so far as to say that um, you, you may possess any kind of, of gun uh, whenever, for whatever purpose. And so uh, recognize that there are sensitive times, places, buildings where guns cannot be possessed, certain people who can't possess them, and certain types of guns that can't be possessed. So I think you know, there's you know majority of Americans favor a limitation on these high-powered weapons of war. And I think that we, you're rather waiting for someone else to come along and do it. I think we need to raise this. Oxford is a perfect opportunity, I think, in Michigan uh, to, to try to convince people, uh, even those who have extreme views on guns. Uh, may, maybe we'd do it without them. But the, you know, the moderate middle, let's go, folks. Uh, these weapons are killing people. Let's, let, we, we have the ability to stop this.
1: So, I also want to give you a chance to talk about the way that Oakland County Prosecutor Karen McDonald has responded to this shooting at Oxford High School. Of course, she's charging the 15-year-old accused shooter Ethan Crumbly, but she is charging him as an adult, uh, which is somewhat controversial, I think, in the law. Uh, She's also charging both of his parents with involuntary manslaughter, which is something we just do not see in these kinds of cases. She joined us on the show last week, and I just want to listen for a second to what she said about why she's charging James and Jennifer Crumbly in that case. Let's, let's listen to what she had to say.
3: I just couldn't find a way, a path forward where we, as a, as a County would continue through this case without holding them criminally culpable because they are. And, and, you know, if, if that decision has an effect on how, as a, as a state or a nation, we look at uh, these sorts of crimes in terms of being responsible gun owners, then I, I couldn't, couldn't be happier if, if we changed something, because we know we need to change something.
1: Yeah. Uh, that was Oakland County Prosecutor uh, Karen McDonnell last week on the program talking about her decision to charge Ethan Humley's parents. Uh, Barb McQuaid, you were a prosecutor, a federal prosecutor. Well, what do you make of this decision?
2: Yeah and you know as a criminal law professor one of the things we teach is the the purposes of punishment why do we bother charging people with crimes and going through the whole process of a trial and maybe even taking away their liberty which is you know one of the dearest rights we have as Americans, and there are a number of reasons. One is public safety. If there's somebody who's dangerous, like an Ethan Crumbly, he just needs to be removed from society so he can't hurt other people. Sometimes it's retribution, that that we feel that there's been a grave injustice here, and we need to hold someone accountable. Sometimes it's rehabilitation. This person has an addiction, and we can get them the help they need, and hopefully help them on the path to become uh, a law-abiding citizen. But in in this case, I think this is the one that matters most, and that is deterrence. That is another reason that you hold people accountable, is in hopes of other people are watching, and I think that's what I heard the prosecutor mention there. Other people are watching, and it is going to make them think twice about their own decisions. And so if there are parents or people close to someone who is um, mentally unstable, has expressed a desire to uh, engage in violence and has access to a weapon, and you have the control over that weapon, then you have a duty to do something. You know, most of us don't have a duty when it comes to omission. We don't have to intervene if we see a crime happening on the street corner. But there are certain people who do have a duty to engage, and that is, you know, people have a special relationship. It includes parents and their children and their minor children. So if you are a parent, and you know your child has these issues, and you give them a semi-automatic weapon and don't do anything about it, um, then let's deter those people by showing that there is some accountability if you engage in that crime by omission. And I think that's what's happening in this case. It'll be an interesting case. There are no doubt in some ways victims here too, and very sympathetic. Uh, I think it didn't help their cause when they fled. uh, They appear to have fled uh, following uh, announcement that they would be charged with a crime. But um, you know, we're not saying whether they're good people or bad people, but we are saying that parents have a duty. When they have information that their child might be a, a lethal threat to others, to intervene, and so I think that's the deterrent message that Prosecutor McDonald is is hoping to send with this prosecution.
1: Mm. And and what about charging Ethan Crumbly as an adult? I asked her specifically about that, and and raised the specter of this idea that it's it's in in it's inconsistent with the idea of the kind of criminal justice reform that I think we're talking about uh, an awful lot in, in this country, the idea that uh, child brains are not adult brains. Uh, w- what about here, though, where a child brain results in, and in decision-making results in the death of four people?
2: These are tough calls. Um, you know, one thing I, I learned during the time I was the US attorney, got some training on, is what the point you just made about how the, the juvenile brain, you know, people may look Uh, old and be physically strong, you know, they may look like adults, but they are children and they do not think through the consequences of their actions. Um, So that is one reason that we have juvenile justice rules, because the idea is we don't call them convicted defendants. We call them delinquent juveniles and we want to reform them and get them on the right path. But I do think that there are some crimes that are so egregious that do such harm Um, that we think that this is a person who perhaps cannot be reformed. And when you are willing to kill, uh, four people and, you know, injure others. And I think his goal appears that day to have been to kill as many people as he could. It may be that it's important to hold somebody responsible as an adult. I think that if he had been charged as a child, there might've been some significant outrage from a number of sources, but it, it is a tough call, um, in certain circumstances um, when uh, a child commits a serious crime that causes significant harm to recognize their, um, their lack of mental maturity. But I think in a case like this where the crime was so horrific um, that I probably would have made the same call here.
1: Okay, Barb McQuaid, uh, we had a whole hour for this conversation, and I swear it has felt like about 15 minutes. Yes, Uh, same. Quickly, we are going to have our annual Festivus show on Thursday, where we celebrate that weird holiday from Seinfeld uh, with people talking about their grievances, the airing of grievances. I want to give you an early chance uh, to talk about maybe a grievance that you have this year. Well,
2: I, I I think we've touched on it already, but it is uh, the the internet right wing trolling of of owning the libs. This mm-hmm. idea that um, you know we see it with people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Lauren Boebert, and they are they say things that are provocative solely. It appears to me solely for the purpose of promoting themselves and their image uh, among the most extreme right wing base in politics. They are not there to serve they're there to troll. And I think it is really diminishing our level of discourse in this country and our ability to govern ourselves. You know, Benjamin Franklin said, um, we've given you a republic if you can keep it. Mm -hmm. And it is people like that who are making it questionable whether we can keep it. So that's my grievance.
1: Yeah. Wow. That's a real grievance. (laughs) And that's one that I share as well. uh, And really, really wonderfully stated. Barbara Quaid, it is always great to have you here on Detroit Today. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah,
2: Yeah, my pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
1: Okay, that's going to do it for us today. Come back tomorrow when we're going to talk about the year in state political news with Gongor, Michigan's Zach Gorchow. This is 1019 WDTFM, Detroit's NPR station. Your connection to news, music, and conversation. We'll talk again tomorrow.